Like I always say to people, if type 2 diabetes can be reversed, it will be, it will be reversed because it just makes sense. Makes clinical sense, it makes economic sense, it makes ethical sense, it will happen. The numbers surrounding type 2 diabetes are just staggering. The WHO puts the number north of 400 million people globally who suffer from the disease, and it's just getting worse. Now, health experts agree that type 2 diabetes can largely be managed by a combination of nutrition, exercise, and sometimes medication. But what if it could be reversed completely? That's the claim and the health moonshot of my guest today, Sami Inkinen, CEO and founder of Verda, which Startup Health backed in 2020. Specifically, Inkinen and his team want to reverse type 2 diabetes in 100 million people by 2025. I'm your host, Logan Plaster, and this is Startup Health Now. Sami Inkinen isn't just any health tech founder. Before Verda, he disrupted the real estate industry by co-founding Trulia, which he sold to Zillow for $2.5 billion. Now with Verda, he's raised more than $350 million to date, giving him the capital needed to take a great idea and scale it in really unprecedented ways. In our interview, we'll hear why he started Verda and where they're heading next, but we'll also get a bit personal and hear what makes this dogged entrepreneur, who happens to also be a world-class Ironman athlete, tick. Stick around. Well, Sami, I'm really excited to dig into your story and what you're building there at Verda. Well, thank you so much, Logan. Let's go. So with Verda and Trulia, uh, which you ran before, you've helmed multi-billion dollar companies. And yet my understanding is that you grew up in a relatively rural uh, part of Finland, far from Silicon Valley. And so I wonder if you could just start by giving us a little snapshot of your upbringing and kind of how it shaped where you are now. Yeah, well, first of all, the entire Finland is rural. It's 14 people per square kilometer. So wherever you grow, it's kind of rural. But it is true. I grew up on a farm. Uh, my parents didn't even go to high school. So it was kind of a pretty much a lower middle class farm existence where I grew up. But yeah, so a good question is, how did I end up in America and you know building tech companies and into tech? I think there were a couple of things that is not from a farm upbringing uh, that come to mind. One lucky break, I actually somehow got into computers very early, even before I turned 10 and uh, ran one of the first BBSs, pre-internet bulletin board system from our house, from the farm in uh, 1980s. But yeah, I think that was one of my lucky breaks in that I got into computers at like as a teenager already. Uh, so that one, and I, I think the second thing is I was good at math and sort of sciences at school, so it came natural. And I, thanks to free education in Finland, free public education, I should say, I went all the way and did masters in physics. So I was exposed to science and, you know, people who who were doing cool cool things with science, and that certainly has helped me throughout my my career quite a bit. So that kind of pulled me out of the farm. So when you combine science and computers, seeing what's possible. I think has has really helped me to get where I am today. Nice. Well, I want to uh, zoom forward a little bit. You went to Stanford. You co-founded Trulia, which I understand you you sold for two point five billion to Zillow in twenty fifteen. Um, 
that's obviously, uh, you know, what you'd consider a win. And yet, you know, we learn a lot from every situation like this. And so I, I wonder, you know, when you coming out of Trulia and thinking about what was next, what was something that you wanted to do differently in your next venture, just having learned all those lessons from Trulia? Well, I would say one lesson I learned was not to do another venture. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Because operating and building a company is very, very, very hard. And it's kind of like, it's easy to get excited about new ideas and new things. It's kind of like a first date with someone, but it's a very different thing to get married and live together. So actually that, that was one of the things in my mind. But I guess the related thing to directly answer your question, what, what I learned was, was one, you better have a very, very deep, unexplainable reason for starting a company and trying to solve a problem. Something that goes way beyond, oh, this seems cool. Or when I put the numbers into a spreadsheet, there's clearly an opportunity. So I think that's the one thing that, uh, which maybe in your early 20s, when you just want to start something, people may be thinking about it. But once you build a company over 10 years, you realize that, wow, it's freaking tough. It's tough, so you better love what you're, what you're trying to do. So I, I think that's one thing. And then, of course, I could write an entire book about starting and building and scaling a company. But I would say one thing that I truly experienced, Roberta, was that it's very important to realize what are the big rocks that you have to get right. And then all the little stuff, the thousand to-dos that you have every day, separating the big stuff from the little stuff. So you really sweat the things that matter. Mm. is important because otherwise you just feel overwhelmed all the time and you feel like you don't get anything done and you just don't have enough time well you don't have enough time but somehow you have to do the big stuff so that was very helpful experience and learning from Trulia. well that lesson is a great segue to talking about verda which is obviously why we're having this call today this idea of having something you want to do that you are so deeply obsessed with that you have to solve and I understand you know, a big reason why we started Verta was your own diagnosis with diabetes. Um, so I wonder if we could start from talking about Verta, back it up. And I want to uh, hear about the moment, really, when you discovered that you had diabetes. Yeah. Well, let, let me start even half a step before that, which is, I think my mindset was the same as most people have who look at type 2 diabetes, obesity as an epidemic, which is, well, we know what's going on. People just don't do what they should be doing. They eat too much. They don't exercise enough. End of story. Like, just solve that. Good luck. Impossible. Impossible. And so that was always my mindset. And that completely changed through this personal experience, which was, you know, for years, actually decade plus, I was a relatively high-performing endurance athlete and won the world championships in triathlon in my age group. So I was fit. I was exercising too much and probably eating too little. Like that was me. Yeah. And then in the middle of that, I discovered that I was on my way to becoming type two diabetic and I was pre-diabetic. So suddenly in my own head, I was like, wait a second. Mm. Do, do we actually know what's happening here? Or do we not know? And if we don't know, maybe there's a different way to address this disease. And, you know, I wasn't the scientist behind the, the Verta science, but the, the scientists that I met then ended up becoming my co-founders. And sure enough, the way we look at type 2 diabetes is, is not, or we look at it as a disease of obesity and people eat too much, but it's actually more about what you eat. And if you manipulate those things, 
in the right way and in an individualized way, you can actually take the late stage type 2 diabetes and reverse it. So, you know, the answer to your question is realizing that I had been so wrong and then realizing that in that wrongness was the key to basically solving our type 2 diabetes epidemic. I just felt like, oh my God, I'm, I'm sitting on a secret. I've got to go and make this happen. And partially, it's almost like an apology to all the people living with type 2 diabetes from me. It's like, oh my God, I, I was wrong. It, it's not about you being lazy or not doing what you know you should be doing. That's kind of what happened to me. And it, it, no spreadsheets were needed to justify starting the verdict for me. It, it felt yeah. very personal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had this moment uh, of, of reckoning for yourself personally, I'm sure emotionally, coming on the heels of you know, these big wins, not just Trulia, but also you said, you know, these big athletic wins. And I wonder, um, just kind of speaking more personally, how that revelation of your health uh, and maybe just, you know, realization of our own mortality, how it kind of put some of those other things in perspective for you. Like what really constitutes a win when your health is uh, in the equation all of a sudden? Well, actually, I would even go beyond health or before health. Um, you, you know, you, by traditional standards, how you define company success, you know, truly I went public 2012 and as you mentioned, merged or was acquired by Zillow with a, you know, big number, economic number attached to it. So having gone through, you know, a bunch of ups and downs and success, um, I already learned throughout that journey that, you know, I think the tr traditional definition of success is, at least in American context, it's, it's very money driven and I, I think misguided. So I came to realize that, you know, ultimately it's all about the journey. And the question is, how do you allocate your life's time? And to me, it's using creativity and creating something that improves other people's lives. Um, some people do that in a very small scale setting, whether it's family or friends. But I, I feel like one of my gifts is some sort of cross wiring in my head craziness to go and start a company and, and take that risk. But if I can do that by applying my creativity to help other people improve their lives and improve their health, like that's the definition of success and working on for a long, long time to me is the definition of success. Now, obviously you take investor money, you promise that you, you deliver a return and hopefully deliver. But that to me is a very, very narrow definition of like, if you just put numbers on the scoreboard, to me, it's more about the journey and do I allocate my time and my skills towards something that's meaningful. Okay, so let's come to uh, the present. Let's talk about Verda uh, more specifically. Give us a story of how the idea for Verda came about. You just alluded a minute ago to meeting the scientists that kind of opened your eyes to really what's going on with type two diabetes. So kind of break it down for us. Yeah, well, again, I, I will take the half step backwards and just set the context. Not everybody may be familiar with diabetes, but it's not a tiny little thing. It's globally half a billion people have type two, half a billion people have type two diabetes, more than 30 million in America. It's costing us 400 billion a year in America. And, you know, big numbers, and, and money, but worst of all, it's just getting worse. So the current approach to type 2 diabetes is sort of prescribing more medications to slow down the progression of this chronic disease. 
so the question is like is that the best we can do can't we like reduce this burden or reverse it and and so the answer to your question is my eyes totally open when you know i got to know these scientists and they said hey we don't even need to perform surgery or create new drugs there's a way to nutritionally take this what's considered a chronic disease and actually reverse it and i was like wait a second you should be on a path to win a nobel prize because if you can reverse this disease systematically like this is huge for you know both individuals and and then also for the payers and and, and taxpayers um and so i got very excited and of course i was asking like why haven't you done it but the challenge was that to individualize and provide the support and do it safely at scale you would need to figure out a new way to deliver care you just can't have one doctor per patient like good luck with that 24 7 right. you know one doctor per patient it doesn't work and it's not economical and you know my i guess my innovation to the table was well if if we were able to put real estate agents into people's pockets through smartphones why not do that with doctors and so that that was the genesis for Verda. There was science that you know published evidence that we can manipulate nutrition to reverse the disease, and then marrying that with a new way of delivering care with real medical super uh, medical doctors. If you marry those two things, new way of delivering care enabled by tech and then the science, you could actually systematically reverse type two diabetes, which is this sadly larger than life problem, and that was how we got started and we set this i guess ambitious mission reverse diabetes in 100 million people not many companies like yours talk about systematically reversing type 2 it's mostly about management right um how has the market responded to that kind of language that more aggressive more audacious language yeah i'll 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 give you the in the beginning once upon a time like six years ago when we started and maybe the couple of years following it was a lot of eye rolls and questioning whether we are crazy or or like is there like literally are we telling not the truth like is this even possible so there was definitely a lot of eye rolling by you know even scientists and clinical leaders and chief medical officers of potential health plan and employer customers. Um, and that was one of the reasons we made this, I guess, a bold move as a tech-driven company that we started a prospective clinical trial as step one as of our evolution 2015. So that, that was the beginning. And now where we are today, I think the most exciting thing to show that the world has changed and enough evidence is enough is that just a couple of months ago, August of this year, 2021, the American Diabetes Association and a group of diabetes scientists issued a consensus paper on type 2 diabetes mission and reversal, explaining how it's possible, what it means, and that it's possible, and, and the approach. So we've come a long way. And then, of course, we work with more than 200 large enterprise customers, health plans, even the U.S. Veterans Administration, a bunch of employers from big brand names like Home Depot to Comcast to so forth. So, um, but it, it's pretty much in anything. If, if you have substance that's working, even like electric vehicles, think about the decade ago, people were sort of laughing, like you're driving a Prius, 
what's wrong with you? Like, that's right. crazy. And now, right. not driving an electric vehicle is kind of like, <laughs> when are you going to switch, right? So <laughs> it's, it's very common when you take something new to the market. How do you think? How do you think about the idea of a bounce back? I know this is an issue in in um, type two diabetes. Getting on a program, getting healthy, and then just kind of uh, yo-yoing back to previous behavior is is Verta uh, a really long term program, or kind of how does that work? Yeah, well, it's, it's a very, very, very good question because reversing diabetes for a week or three months, or even six, or we could even say maybe four years. It's you know it's it's not useful. You you want to be delivering sustained long term results. So absolutely, it's it's sort of a key has been a key focus area for us ever since we started, and this is one of the reasons we are now five years into our prospective clinical trial, and we've showed ten week results, so rapid outcomes. But ten weeks, like who cares? Six months sustainability. Then we showed one year sustainability. Then we show two years sustainability, and then we also show three and a half a year, and then so five years. So wow. our focus has always been to deliver long-term results and just to throw some numbers. Um, at one year, our patient retention was 83%. Again, this is published, 83%, and 74% at two years. So it's very high. And even at that, what happened to the small percentage of people who, who left, some of them is based on the data that we've analyzed with some of our customers is what we call graduates. So some of our patients who leave are su successful. They're successful and they say like, thank you for the year and a half. I think I have what I need. I don't have diabetes anymore. I got rid of insulin, my medications, and I kind of know what, I, what to do. And so we gladly say, if, if you are at that point, congratulations, like off you go. But we are here to provide support if, if you need. Uh, you've been very successful um, fundraising. And I'm just curious, at a very high level, what do you see these big fundraisers as enabling you to do as a company? Yeah. Well, yeah, we raised um, more than $300 million in equity financing in total. And, and good news is most of it is, is still in, in the bank. And first, I, I should say, to myself and to other entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs that fundraising is, is not a measure of business success. Now, rare that you can raise capital for business that doesn't have fundamentals, but that is not the ultimate goal. That's not the focus. I call it to my team, I tell it's like a mortgage. Imagine you have a $300 million mortgage. You have to pay back with a very, very high interest. So. I always think of, you know, you, you raise capital to be able to achieve the goals that you need, but that is not a measure of success. So you have to be very, very clear about that. And for better or worse in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of celebration of like, hey, we had this private value and we raised this much money. It's like, guess what? If you could build a business with no capital from outside, wouldn't that be even better? Um, and so, so I am very conscious of, of that. And, but to your question, actually to build a vertical like, company it is reasonably expensive you know again we spent a lot of time running a clinical trial before we even started selling to anyone so so that i'd say for the last two and a half years we've been commercializing but we had like four years of just no revenue things just clinical trial so so that takes capital 
And then now looking forward, um, it also takes capital to commercialize. Building the commercial engine is is actually quite expensive. So that's the one, one area where we are investing quite a bit of capital. And then the second one is just product development, uh, both new indications and building this platform that allows us to deliver what we call continuous remote care. Um, it, it's expensive to hire the software and data scientists and and keep building building that platform so takes capital <laughs> it's capital intensive um i, I want to shift gears a little bit uh in reading about you you can't not find uh news stories about your uh epic uh rowing excursion from california to hawaii uh shortly after you were diagnosed with diabetes you you did this big row uh you know I think I maybe made a world record for the speed at which you, you rode uh, in your vehicle from California to Hawaii in order to raise awareness for diabetes. Is that right? Well, first of all, absolutely. You are correct. Uh, I, I rode across the Pacific Ocean with my wife. Or I should say my wife did most of the work and I, I took some most of the credit uh, from, from California to Hawaii. But yeah, a big part of the what I still consider crazy adventure and feels like an out-of-body experience. Did we really do that a few years ago? Was uh, raising awareness about the dangers of sugar specifically. And, you know, that was a key element of the adventure that we could do that, go very fast, work very hard with no sports products and drinks and gels and bars and that kind of stuff. I guess my question is around what the spirit of that adventure kind of says about the kind of CEO or leader that you are. And, and maybe if there were some any lessons that you took from that, um, I, not every CEO of a healthcare company is sort of jumping into that situation. And I'm just sort of wondering what that says about your, your ethos as a leader and a CEO. You know, I, I think rowing 45 days through storms and again it's unsupported it's not like we had a helicopter following anything it certainly takes the willingness to take appropriate risks it takes a lot of grit and perseverance and ability to just keep going uh through adversity and and not fall apart physically or mentally it's also mentally very tough so hopefully i can apply those into my my professional life but i i would say there were a kind of a couple of philosophical or mental or number of lessons. Um, one was this mantra that we kept repeating, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. So whether it was a storm or expectation of moving fast one day and then it all had wind and we got almost nowhere, it's very easy to just basically become demoralized if not depressed like oh my god this is horrible but when you go through those cycles like dozens of them you realize that you know everything's very impermanent that this too shall pass so that's the one thing that i've certainly taken you know building a growth company it's like running from one crisis to another and being able to have that perspective like ah this too shall pass and enjoy the obstacle uh, so that was one. And then I would say the second thing which really cemented my willingness to go and start Verda was the realization that pushing towards discomfort, being uncomfortable, those periods in my life, while sort of physically a permanent, oh, sorry, temporarily uncomfortable, 
have been most rewarding and gratifying. The role was just one of them. Like, honestly, one million awestrokes. Guess how many of them were painful? One million. But it was a very rewarding experience in many ways. And so that sort of willingness to get uncomfortable rather than run towards, I don't know, hot chocolates and fireplace is something that I took from that role. Is that a, is that a Finnish uh, uh, way, way, way of thinking? Sisu, is that what they call that? Uh, yeah, so your listeners should Google Sisu, S-I-S-U, uh, something around perseverance and grit. Um, yeah, I, I think it took a lot of Sisu to, to do the role as well. If you're mentoring a young CEO, um, are there ways in which you would encourage them? I mean, in our portfolio, we've got hundreds of uh, early stage healthcare founders. Are, are there ways that you would encourage them to... Uh, I don't know, take risks outside of their business to sort of build up some of these uh, muscles, uh, this ability to face adversity so that when you hit it as a CEO, it's not the first time. Uh, interesting. I, um, I'd absolutely en encourage or recommend a few other things for CEOs or founders first time or second time. I would say one, definitely have a hobby or some deep interest where your identity is not tied into your company at all, whether that's sports or arts or family, whatever that is, because it's very, very important. It makes it easier to take risk and not attach the outcome or the day-to-day, -day, whatever, that this is all there is. Well, that's not true. Yeah. And, but it's easier to get out of that mindset if you have like, you're just nobody or no one in another context. So, so that's one thing I would encourage everyone to do. That actually helps risk taking. And then the second one is have trusted people that you can learn from. And so I'll just give an example. I have um, I actually have not just one, but two executive coaches that I've worked with for years. So I'm still trying to learn and become better. I've also been a member of the YPO Young Presidents Organization and the forum that meets for four hours per month for 13 years. So it's a group of wow. eight to 10 other CEOs that you meet with for four hours each month. And it's highly confidential. You talk about your personal life, your relationships, your professional yeah. life. So finding those groups, and this is not just a cocktail party with tons of techies, like that is not authentic. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's not. So that, that I would encourage, because it's a lonely job to be a founder or founder and CEO. And yeah, it's, it's good to have that trusted support network who's there for you in the ups and the downs. Yeah, it's interesting. We've actually adapted that um, YPO model to startup health, peer-to-peer -peer coaching um, circles, uh, really a similar model that was adopted straight from YPO. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so, so glad that you, you're doing it. I, I just cannot quantify wow. the value and the benefit that I've had in my life. Not just professional life, it's everything that happens in life, the ups and downs and having a family and having kids and, you know, parents, deaths and all kinds of things. It's yeah. been super helpful. So what are you most excited about with what's next for Verda? Well, I, we are in this fun spot Products being built and tested in the clinical trial got the first customer. So scaling phase. And so I would say, maybe this sounds boring, but like truly scaling the impact, reversing type 2 diabetes 
in more and more people and delivering that experience for the individuals and then delivering value to our customers. It's almost like we are now at this point where we'll be working so hard for five or six years and now it's starting to truly pay dividends and you go from sidewinds to tailwinds. So that is what I'm most excited about uh, uh, right now. And it's kind of like seeing the results of the last six years of hard work, that, that is what I'm most excited about. And given the end product of our work is actually to improving or you could say saving a life, I don't need anything else. That's plenty of rewards for me. Uh, what are some of the building blocks of that scaling process? I mean, hiring, building new offices, new markets. What are some of the specifics that excite you? Yeah, well, obviously, we deliver telemedicine. So we, we, there's less offices to be built. So we, we don't even physically touch touch our patients. But it, it's a couple of things. One, on the commercial side, you know, we started from employers. Then we went to health plans. Now we have some government state organizers. We work with like the state of Alabama and a couple of other states. So one is opening up new avenues there, including Medicare, Medicare Advantage. So one is opening up uh, new channels with our commercial B2B partners. So that's a big part of it. And then honestly, the largest part of our organization is, is product development and scaling the platform because it's, this unlimited amount of opportunities to improve patient delight and outcomes and efficiency. And, and then behind the scenes, there are a couple of other indications we're working on through clinical trials and otherwise that I'm not in a position yet to, to talk about. But we haven't stopped, I guess, foundational research either. And we'll be publishing some hopefully exciting outcomes that either directly or indirectly relate to type 2 diabetes reversal. You know, when you got started in California, you were bringing a fresh perspective from uh, Europe, from Finland. Uh, you've been at the game a long time. And, you know, I wonder if you feel like your approach to business and healthcare and how you think about uh, access to care is, is still sort of a, a European mindset or, or unique from what you see in the States. And if so, in what ways? Yeah, well, um, in Rome, you have to do like the Romans do. So I've suddenly tried to be very humble and naive. You know, we are not in a position to truly change policy or how the U.S. healthcare system works. So you kind of have to make sure that we have the product, we have the treatment to reverse type 2 diabetes, but then it has to plug into the U.S. system in terms of payments and incentives and distribution and so forth. So I would have a lot of ideas how you could potentially improve the U.S. healthcare system from a policy perspective. Uh, personal experience living in and growing up in, in Finland. But the reality is when you're a startup, you have to assume that the landscape and the system is the same and then you innovate with your own product. If you try to innovate with the system and the policy, you're going to be waiting for a long, long time. So that's that's kind of been my my approach. Uh, final question: what, what, What's your health moonshot vision for where diabetes will be if things really go and scale the way that 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 you're dreaming they will in say five, ten years? What's your vision for for that market and for those you know hundreds of millions of patients who really are suffering along with their families? Well, there's two things that would be very impressive. I think the first one is kind of in the process of happening. It's one is the 
absolute sort of system-wide and global acceptance that the primary goal of type 2 diabetes care is reversal or remission of the disease. It's not just, oh, you have it, here's some drugs, keep popping those. So, so that one would be that the primary goal is reversal or remission. I think we are a day closer today than we were today and a consensus paper that came out in August is a very powerful signal towards that direction. So that's one. And then the second one is just putting the score force on the scoreboard. And specifically, I think a point that would be worthy of massive celebration is that the growth curve of number of people with type 2 diabetes, not just flattens, that becomes flat. Like that would be actually massive because it's growing so fast. Yeah. So once we see that, I would say it would be cause for massive celebration. Because once you see it flat, then there's no reason you can't be uh, putting the absolute numbers down. Question, is the current growth rate accelerating? Uh, that's a good question. I, I actually don't remember on top of my head. <laughs> it just, it's just it's, so big. So we have about half a billion. It's expected to be you know, 700, 750 million globally in, in just in about a decade or so, I should check the numbers. Yeah. But it, it's just sort of, you extrapolate <laughs> a little bit and you, there's soon a billion, billion people globally with type 2 diabetes. So whether it's accelerating or not, it, it's mind-blowingly large. And so something needs to happen and we are working on that something. <laughs> well, that's a great note to end on. It, it is it is a hard contrast to to hold in your head that on one hand this problem is so massive. On the other hand, you have uh, had great success and you've raised these funds and you have these partners and you're making headway. And yet the iceberg is so big. So both things uh, both things are true. I mean, there there is hope, and yet there's also this massive massive challenge that we have to keep our eyes on. But then it's also motivating to me and exciting. And again, sorry, I take these car analogies, although I'm a bicycle person, not a car person, but you could think of the same thing in, in electric vehicles that there's so many gasoline using cars sold every year and like EVs are probably five years ahead of diabetes reverse, but it's kind of the same thing. It's motivating, it's exciting, because it, to me it's inevitable. Like I always say to people, if type 2 diabetes can be reversed, it will be. It will be reversed because it just makes sense. It makes clinical sense. It makes economic sense. It makes ethical sense. It will happen. And so then it's just a question of how quickly can we scale? And uh, yeah, that's why we're running. Do you feel like that's a defining feature of a successful CEO, the ability to um, identify and embrace what they see as inevitable, to see the inevitable before everybody else and embrace it? You have to be able to dream and envision what does not exist. You definitely have to be able to do it. In fact, you cannot start a company unless you have that. And maybe that's another place where my wires are crossed in my head that even as a kid, I was always dreaming about what could be, should be, rather than what I had. And so I was always thinking, what could be built, what should be built, what can be built in five years. And so I, my head's always thinking that way. So I, I do think that's necessary because if, if you're just staring in your toes, it's kind of like in a running competition, you will stumble. Like you, you certainly have to look into the future and see a little bit around the corner that others may, may not be able to see. Love it. 
Well, Sami, thank you so much for taking the time with me. I, I love that you took your personal experience, the challenge of your diabetes diagnosis, and you leverage that to create something that can help millions and millions of people. So we'll really be watching and um, excited to see what Verda does next. Well, thank you so much, Logan. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 380 companies, go to startuphealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Impact Fund in collaboration with AngelList, go to healthmoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.